Just yesterday, I received a text message from Leah, one of our former residents who's now in the real world. Good job, Leah. She had a complicated question about a complicated patient who has antiphospholipid antibody and is pregnant. So, of course, I thought, yeah, that's a pretty good podcast topic. Because even though the diagnostic criteria hasn't changed and has been around for decades, the truth is management can still kind of confuse people. But it really shouldn't because it really is pretty clear-cut. But I've heard the spectrum of treating patients with prednisone and heparin or prednisone and aspirin to prophylactic versus full therapeutic dose Lovenox. And the truth is we really need to get this right. So in this podcast, which is part one, we're going to cover the diagnostic criteria for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome and who should be screened for it. And then we'll follow up with breaking down management during pregnancy for patients with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And it's not as easy as you would think, but it does make complete sense. Ready? Let's get into antiphospholipid syndrome, the diagnostic criteria now. Hi, this is Madeline Carson, fourth year medical student at Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and future family medicine physician. This is Clinical Pearls. Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is a systemic autoimmune disorder that's characterized by venous or arterial thrombosis with or without pregnancy loss in the presence of persistent expression of these antiphospholipid antibodies. Now, the main types of antiphospholipid antibodies that are a concern during pregnancy are the lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin antibody, and the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1 antibody. Everybody good? Lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin antibody, and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1. Those are all the important antiphospholipids that we're going to talk about in this podcast treatment of antiphospholipid syndrome during pregnancy reduces the frequency of thrombosis and can help reduce the risk of an adverse pregnancy outcome. We're going to talk about these specific antibodies in just a little bit more detail when we get into the criteria, but for now, good to know their names and put them to the side. Okay, so the condition is called two different things and they mean the same thing. It's either antiphospholipid syndrome or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. They're the same thing, they're kind of semantics, but some people use different terminology. But we're talking about the same condition. This condition is present if at least one clinical criteria and at least one of the lab criteria are present. One of the clinical criteria that can be present is vascular thrombosis, and this can be either arterial, venous, or small vessel thrombosis. This can happen in any tissue or any organ. Now, thrombosis has to be confirmed by an objective validated criteria, like unequivocal findings of an appropriate imaging study or histopathology. The other clinical criteria is pregnancy-related morbidity. So remember these. The first pregnancy-related morbidity can be one or more unexplained death of a morphologically normal fetus at 10 weeks or beyond. All right? So that includes stillbirth. So the antiphospholipid syndrome is part of the stillbirth evaluation because it's beyond 10 weeks as long as there's a morphologically normal fetus. The second pregnant morbidity condition is one or more premature births of a morphologically normal fetus that's born before 34 weeks with one of the following conditions, either preeclampsia or eclampsia, 
or recognize features of placental insufficiency. And I'll get into that in just a minute. The third clinical criteria under pregnancy morbidity is three or more unexplained consecutive spontaneous abortions before the 10th week of pregnancy, with maternal anatomical or hormonal abnormalities being ruled out. Let's hold on there for a minute, because this pregnancy morbidity criteria of three or more unexplained consecutive spontaneous abortions kind of runs people the wrong way. Because what if they're not consecutive? Well, the truth is, those seem to be more sporadic and episodic. And honestly, they don't fulfill the criteria, because the criteria is very clear. They have to be three or more unexplained consecutive spontaneous abortions. And to fit the entire criteria, remember that you have to exclude maternal uterine abnormalities. You have to exclude hormonal issues and you have to exclude paternal and maternal chromosomal causes. Now, the last thing that's not written, but is kind of understood, is that each pregnancy should technically have occurred with the same partner. But remember, the same partner is not written into the definition just the exclusion of maternal anatomical, hormonal, or paternal or maternal chromosomal issues. Let's just review these clinical issues before we get into the lab diagnosis. Remember, you just need one of these, either a vascular thrombosis, which can be either arteriovenous or small vessel, and some pregnancy morbidity, either one or more fetal losses more than 10 weeks, one or more premature births defined as before 34 weeks with either severe preeclampsia or eclampsia or uteroplacental insufficiency. And the last condition is three or more unexplained consecutive spontaneous abortions before 10 gestational weeks. I didn't forget about the lab issue, but we've got to still stick with this clinical criteria because it needs some clarification, like the thrombotic issue. Superficial venous thromboses are not included in the clinical criteria. And regarding placental insufficiency, because people have asked, well, what does that even mean? Well, there are some, some examples, there are some conditions where placental insufficiency is likely to be the cause. This can include an abnormal or non-reassuring fetal surveillance test, like a non-reactive NST, suggestive of fetal hypoxemia. Or it could be an abnormal Doppler flow asymmetry. It could also be oligohydramnios. Remember, that's either a single vertical pocket less than two, or if you're using the AFI, which I don't like, the AFI index is less than five. All of those point to placental insufficiency, so that would fulfill that criteria or a postnatal birth weight less than the 10th percentile, in other words, truly either small for gestational age at time of birth or suspected fetal growth restriction, all of those meet the criteria for placental insufficiency under the pregnancy morbidity category. Oh, and another important note, placental abruption. Placental abruption is not considered one of the criteria for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, so don't include that in there. Well, I know I've probably belabored this whole clinical criteria already to death, but I got one more thing to say before we head over to the lab criteria because it is important. Look, just because your patient has a inherited or an acquired thrombophilia like factor V Leiden deficiency or protein C deficiency doesn't mean you can't still look for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome criteria. So they're not exclusively for each other. Also remember that stillbirth is not related to inherited thrombophilia. So that by itself should cause you to keep looking for other causes. Remember, ACOG says that inherited thrombophilias are not a cause of stillbirth, but antiphospholipid antibody syndrome still is.
Okay, let's get into the lab criteria. So remember your antiphospholipid antibodies. You remember them? So it's lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin antibody, and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1. Lupus anticoagulant has to be present in the plasma on two or more occasions, at least 12 weeks apart. And this is detected according to the guidelines of the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. In other words, just make sure you click the right box for lupus anticoagulant and is pretty much run by an algorithm. The second is anticardiolipin antibody, and it has to be either the IgG or the IgM isotype. This has to be present in either plasma or serum in medium or high titers, and that's greater than 40 GPL or MPL or greater than the 99th percentile. Okay, so anticarlepin antibodies, either IgG or IgM, in medium or high titers defined as greater than 40. This also has to be positive on two or more occasions at least 12 weeks apart. And then the third is the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1 antibody that also is either the IgG or the IgM isotype. And like anticardiolipin antibody and lupus anticoagulant, it has to be present on more than one occasion, at least 12 weeks apart. The reason that this is required to be present at least 12 weeks apart is because some acute illnesses or some brief autoimmune flares can trigger these positive antibody results, but they can go away. That's why having them being persistent is the vital part of the lab criteria for antiphospholipid syndrome. Now that we've covered the general criteria, remember you just need one clinical and one lab criteria to get the diagnosis of antiphospholipid syndrome. Then we go into management. Now remember we're talking about pregnancy-specific care here. So management is going to have two different boxes, antepartum care of the patient with antiphospholipid syndrome and postpartum care in patients with antiphospholipid syndrome. But it's not that easy because they're not one box or one fix fixes all. And the reason is that there's different manifestations of APS, antiphospholipid syndrome, as we've just discussed. So if the patient has antiphospholipid syndrome with thrombotic history alone, but no pregnancy morbidity, that's going to guide treatment down one path. If the patient has antiphospholipid syndrome based on lab criteria and recurrent miscarriages, that's going to lead to a second path. And there's times when the patient's going to have antiphospholipid antibodies detected by lab, but she's had actually no clinical manifestation because it was part of some other workup. In other words, she hasn't had any history of thrombosis and she hasn't had any previous adverse pregnancy outcome. Well, that's going to lead to a separate path. So remember, we're going to cover management in the next section because I really wanted to stick on the diagnostic criteria here. But the whole take-home and as a plug for the next session, which is part two, it's not one treatment fixes all because you do need to tailor the management, both antepartum and postpartum, based on the specific type of antiphospholipid syndrome manifestation in the patient's history. Look, I don't know about you, but I feel like I used a lot of words in this podcast. And that was just the diagnostic criteria. And the truth is, even though the diagnostic criteria is very clear, one clinical, one lab criteria, it kind of needs a lot of words to describe 
that's why we're going to stop here because I don't want to overdo it and I want to let that sit in and take root before we go to part two, which is the approach to treatment of pregnant and postpartum women with antiphospholipid syndrome. That brings us to a wrap. As always, we're thankful for you and thankful that you're part of our podcast family. Hang out for part two coming up on antiphospholipid antibody syndrome in pregnancy and see you next time on Clinical Pearls.